Hey, Icon, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, I am happy to uh, be finishing up our series in Romans. It's been a really good one, but I do want to, before we jump into it, just provide a, another update, uh, kind of a re-update on, on what we're doing for our online liturgy. So for, th- for the last 19 months now, we've had the privilege and the gift to be able to serve so many through being able to do these pre-recorded sermons that we've uh, put online for our Sunday service. And so now, uh, as we shift more and more energy into our in-person services, what we're going to do is we're not going to be doing a pre-recorded sermon, but we're actually going to record our live services every single Sunday uh, and then post that on the website on Mondays for you to be able to view all throughout the week. Uh, and, And, you know, I know that, that, that for many of you, this is still such a good option to be able to, to hear the word and be encouraged by the word. And I don't, want, I don't want you to feel any sense of guilt for that because I know there's some who, who genuinely cannot come back to in-person services because they are more at risk or those who they love are more at risk. And so I would encourage you to, to, take, uh, to, to, to make use of that live service recording that's going to be going on. Uh, our website and still sit under the word, still see what God is saying to us at Icon Church. And for some of you also, I would exhort you to come back to in-person services. You know, in in my Bible reading plan uh, for this week, I happen to be going through Hebrews uh, and and I came across Hebrews 10.25, which is kind of the classic verse where it talks about uh, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but rather encouraging one another. And, you know, that, that, that verse is used a lot in order to, to loop people back into to coming back to Sunday service and to show the biblical mandate for Sunday services. Um, but one of the things I noticed in that, you know, often when I read that verse, I, I just view the negative. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. But I've never picked up until now the, the, the opposite that the writer of Hebrews gives to, to not meeting together is not just meeting together. But he says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but rather encourage one another. (laughs) It's like the writer of Hebrews doesn't just look at this and say, well, you know, don't neglect to meet together, so meet together. Actually, he says, don't neglect to meet together, but encourage one another, which, which shows us what the Sunday service, what the Sunday gathering is for. It's not just so that we can warm pews. It's so that we can encourage one another. It's so that we can hold one another to the truth of our faith and breathe life into our faith and represent to one another the gospel week in and week out that we have such difficulty rehearsing for ourselves individually on our couches. So I would encourage you, if you are able, if you're not at risk, if you're fully vaccinated and you're not at risk, make it a habit to come back to Sunday services. Again, this is not a desire to, to warm pews. We got plenty of people in the audience. But it's so that you can be encouraged in your faith. God himself put that there in his word to mandate that we come back, to, that we join one another in person when we can because he knows that we need it. He knows that our faith, friends, our faith is at risk when it's individualized. And so I would encourage you Come back and make it a habit. And it's going to take discipline, without a doubt. It's going to take discipline to to re-up on that practice of getting ready, getting in the car, driving to service. It seems much easier to just make that five-second commute to the couch. But though it's easier, it is not better. 
And so I would encourage you to, to come back to services now that you can. For those of you at risk, take advantage of this online service still, this, this recorded service that we'll have uh, on the website from Monday. But for those of you who can, I would encourage you to come back. And next week is actually a great week for you to come back. It's going to be our anniversary Sunday. We're going to be celebrating two years as a church, which if you know everything that we've gone through from pandemic to transition, it is a miracle to celebrate two years. And we want to look forward to the years ahead on what God wants to do in Seattle through Icon Church. And so would you come and celebrate with us? And then the week after that, we're going to be jumping into our fall series on who Icon is and why that might matter for Seattle by God's grace. But for today, we are finishing up our series in Romans. Let me pray and we'll jump into it. Father, I thank you for the, the gift of technology that for the last 19 months, we've been able to leverage for the gospel, for the encouragement of one another in order to still tune in and still hear your word spoken to us, to still have ourselves, like we say often around, around Icon, to still align ourselves with the Bible and not the other way around, because we are so tempted to align the Bible around us. But Lord, we need to align ourselves around the Bible. So because of that, we want to hear your word preached. And I thank you that the gift of technology has allowed your word to be preached in ways and in avenues and gifts that we didn't expect to need, but when we needed it, we had it. So I, I thank you for the gift of technology. I thank you for the gift of talent, God, for the people who for 19 months, week in and week out, have put in the work to make sure this online service happens. Such gifts like, like Paolo and Lona and Rachel and Mateo, and in the early days, Luke, such gifts to, to leverage their talents in order to serve those of us who could not come back in person, which was all of us for a long time. So thank you for them, Father. And I pray that you would help us to re-up on the habit, the discipline of coming back together. That you would give us a check in our spirit to see the insufficiency of online church. And that if we're not at risk, the necessity we have to come back, even the biblical mandate we have, to come back and to join your people, God. And for today, as we look at this text in Romans 8 and finish up our series on Romans, God, would you, would you speak to us? Would you give us a greater vision of what suffering is and what it can do for us, God? Expand our vision. Comfort us without a doubt. You comfort us with your love in suffering, and yet also you are creative with suffering using it for our long-term good and growth. Help us to see that today and to hear that as good news. Would you unite your power, O oh Father, by your Spirit? Would you unite your power with my weak words and cause fruit in our life together here at Icon? We love you, Lord, and we entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most funerals in Pennsylvania don't get the national attention that this one did. About five or six years ago, there was a funeral that happened in Pennsylvania 
Uh, and it got a lot of national attention, both, for the, both because of the reason, uh, both because of the person for whom the funeral was and those who were in attendance. The, the funeral was for a man who was, a, who, 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 uh, was an active shooter in an Amish community in 2015 in Pennsylvania. It was a tragic scene. And just like every other mass shooting that we see in our country, it gripped the attention of our nation and the grief of our hearts. But we didn't pay attention to the funeral because of who was being laid in the ground. The nation turned its attention towards this funeral but, but, but because of who was in attendance. Those in the Amish community who had just suffered the evil violence of this man, attended this funeral not to picket it, not to exercise vengeance, but rather to comfort the grieving family of this man. And it, it, it captured our nation's attention. We couldn't, we couldn't understand why these people who were victims of this man's evil intents, that they would show up to this man's funeral not to practice vengeance, not to deride the parents, but actually to try to comfort them, to bring flowers, to wear black, to, to join these parents in their grief. We would assume that, we would, that, that, that the Amish community would want that family to suffer in the same way that they were now, to feel the pain of loss, the pain of death, and yet they didn't. Instead, they showed up to this funeral exercising grace, love, compassion. They were, they were not just peaceable, but peacemakers, and it confused our secular nation. What in the world would make someone do that? Well, the reason they did that is because the Amish community is, a, in many ways, a Christian community. That though it has some very unique features, it is in the end based on the gospel. And what we saw in that Amish community showing up to that funeral, exercising compassion and grace, what we saw is that for the Christian, suffering is different. It's different. Everyone suffers, but Christians suffer differently. That we who have been saved by Jesus Christ, who have put our faith in Jesus and pledged our allegiance to him as Lord, we are now new. And part of what that newness means is a new view on suffering. We don't suffer in the same way that our secular neighbors do. Though the circumstances may look the same, we do not go through them in the same way. Instead, suffering in many ways is captured by the Christian worldview in order to work for our good. I wonder if you've ever considered that the Christian worldview, the fulcrum of the Christian worldview on which it turns and makes sense is the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Suffering is not just peripheral to the Christian worldview, but it is actually central. And you see this when you read the rest of the Bible too. That there are men and women who endure painful, heart-wrenching tragedy. And yet they endure. More than endure, they become more fruitful, more faithful. All, th all throughout the story of the scriptures, and even more so all throughout the story of the Christian church. 
that when Nero and Domitian lopped the heads of Christians off their necks, the gospel still moved forward. Indeed, it spread even faster. And so it seems as if suffering is not just central to the Christian worldview, but there's actually something in suffering that can actually serve us. That for the Christian, we are not just victims. And we are victims of suffering, without a doubt. We talked about that a lot last week. That we are burdened and laid low by suffering and we have a savior whose love comes after us and whose love understands our pain and is compassionate, but we are not just victims. And we see that in the text today that we're ending our series in Romans on. Let me go through and read this text and then we're going to jump into some stuff. Look at verse 35 with me, starting back there. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week, we picked up on verses 35 to show that we can't be separated from the love of Christ, but we're picking it up now. If you look at verse 36, look at what Paul does here. To show, we're going to be talking about the ways in which suffering serves Christians. And listen to what he says. He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 44, 22. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is right on the tail end where Paul's talking about distress and persecution and nakedness and sword and, and danger and, and all the things that we are vulnerable to as Christians in suffering. And he quotes the Old Testament that basically gives the idea of being victims of suffering. For your sake, O oh God, we're being killed all the day long. We're nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. And what's Paul's reaction there? No. No. In all these things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, this is the only place in the New Testament where the Old Testament is quoted and the writer in response says, no. <laughs> And it's not because Paul is refuting the truth of the Old Testament, but just like Jesus does on the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking a truth from the Old Testament and reshaping it based on the Christian worldview, on the, on the newness of the gospel, that we are no longer just sheep to be slaughtered. We are not just being killed all the day long. We are not just victims of suffering, but because of Jesus Christ, because of him who loved us, we are more than conquerors. What in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. It, it, it means that in all these things, these things of suffering and distress and nakedness and sword and danger, in all these things, 
we are now served by them. The, the, these trials, these storms and seasons of suffering are no longer the masters of our fate or the most true thing about our story, but rather are servants for us. Servants for us as Christians. You see, this is, this is part of what the Christian worldview is all about, is God taking what should have been our destruction and actually reworking it, reshaping it, redeeming it to be for our construction. You see, I mean, you see that at the, at the center of our faith in Jesus Christ. A, a, a Savior, a crucified Savior should mean nothing to us. And it meant nothing to the Romans. It meant nothing to the Jews. In fact, it was in some ways derogatory. How in the world are you going to call, how, how are you going to put those two words together? Crucified Savior? No, 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 no. That doesn't make sense. But for God, who takes the very place of death and makes it into the means of life for Christians, we can see how he did that. We can see that in the, in the very center of our Christian faith, God is taking what should mean destruction and actually reworking it, reshaping it to construct something beautiful, something good. It's not, it's not in spite of the cross that we have life. It's because of it. And so God takes what should be our destruction and actually uses it for good, uses it for new life. And if that's at the very center of our faith, certainly that's, that, that should inform the way that we experience and view suffering. And again, we talked last week about the ways in which Jesus' love for us is good news in our suffering, that he comes after us, that he's compassionate toward us. None of this is to say that we aren't victims from suffering and that suffering isn't real and painful. It's just to say that we're not only that. That we're not just laid low by suffering, but should we endure it by faith and let the Lord do his work in it, we are served by it. We are served by it. And that's because of what Paul notes here. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Suffering serves the Christian not because we're smart enough to turn it for our good. Not because we're strong enough to, to take the opportunity of growth. Suffering serves the Christian because God loves us. <laughs> Because God refuses to let suffering just stand as an evil and as a destructive force, but because of his love, will use it for our good. <laughs> so this, 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 this idea of suffering becoming our servant isn't up to us figuring out how to grow. What is God trying to teach me? What is he trying to do? What do I need to change? What do I need to grow in? It's not up to that. It's up to the God who loves us to work in us through suffering. And that will always happen. His work will always be happening, even in suffering, which is why Paul gets into his next thought there. For I am sure, other translations say, I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's he saying there? What he's saying is that there is nothing outside the realm of God's active love toward us no matter what suffering comes into our life. No matter what pain, no matter what tragedy comes in our life, it does not exist outside of the realm of God's active love, an active love that is able to take our circumstances, take our pain, acknowledge them, affirm them, affirm that pain, and then reshape it, repurpose it for our good. That should give us some comfort today, friends. That should lessen some anxiety and drop some of our shoulders. To know that for every anxiety I have, for every fear that I have about some tragedy coming into my life, to my family's life, it's never coming at me outside of the realm of God's active love. It's never coming at me in such a way that bypasses the love of God, that somehow is free from being turned for my good because of the love of God. Nothing can, though I might feel blindsided, the love of God is not, but is rather working and active through it. That's, that's, that's the truth of this text, that he loves us to turn our suffering, and sometimes he, he loves us enough to have us suffer. That as Joni Erickson Tata once said, the paraplegic who is a faithful Christian and has endured deep suffering almost her whole life, said that sometimes God allows that which he hates in order to accomplish that which he loves. That sometimes suffering comes into our life in order to, to grow us, in order to shape us. And it's, a, though, though I, I, I think I step on holy ground here and reverent ground here. I don't want you to feel beat down. I don't want you to feel that suffering is lessened. I do want you to hear the truth of the Bible, that God uses suffering for our good. It refines us. It reshapes us. In many ways, the gospel would not still be around, would not still be proclaimed if it weren't for the suffering of Christian history. The suffering in many ways has been the conveyor belt that has moved the gospel forward, that has moved our Christian life forward. Otherwise, we'd be trapped in a childish, defunct, deficient faith that never goes beyond the surface joys that we love, but is never backed into a corner so that we might grow. So suffering, as painful as it is, as hurtful as it is, we've, we've got to see that as Christians, we are not victims of it, but rather it serves us. And what I want to do in the rest of this sermon to close this out is, is to talk about some specific ways in which we can be more than conquerors in suffering. 
the ways in which God's, God's love might be working for us in suffering. And I know that when we talk about as Christians, how suffering serves us and suffering grows us, we just, we kind of jump into the, 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 the uh, basic categories of, oh, it just refines my faith. But that, that's really ambiguous. <laughs> and what I found is ambiguity in the midst of suffering usually doesn't help. So I want to get specific. I want to get specific about some ways in which suffering can help us and serve us as Christians in our faith. And so first, one of the reasons that suffering serves us is because suffering removes what you might call the the graven image of God as our accomplice. Suffering removes the graven image of God as our accomplice. We have a basic view of God, and it's this. God works for our good, right? God, 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 God serves my ambitions. God is there in order to further my agenda, to establish my ambitions. We just think that, 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 that and this, this is both true of Christians and non-Christians, that God is simply this, this, this fairy in the sky that really we just maybe, you know, uh, pull a lever, you know, like a slot machine. We pull a lever, put in a coin of maybe a little bit of faith, maybe a little bit of prayer. And then we pull a lever and then God is going to work for our good in the way that we think he should. But suffering comes into our life and suddenly we're awakened to see that, oh my gosh, God does not work in the way that I expected him to. God is not working as my accomplice in this. That that it seems like he's working in ways, he's doing things that are totally different than anything I would have expected or even wanted. (laughs) And that's a good thing to see. That's a good thing to have fall away from you because God is not our accomplice. God is not our accomplice in seeking the good life and what the American secular dream would call the good life. God is not our accomplice to to further our personal agendas. God is not our accomplice to establish our purposes and ambitions. He is a God who has his own agenda, and it is good. And often he will use suffering in order to awaken us to see that he is not Although his love serves us and is with us and moves toward us, he does not exist to serve us. He does not exist in order to co-sign on the plans and agendas we already have in our fallen minds and hearts. But rather, he's working. He's doing something. And we see that in suffering in, I think, some really unique ways. There's a, you know, there's a, a, a lady named Elizabeth Elliot who died a number of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, and she tells this story of how she was a, a missionary to a tribe in South America. And uh, she went there in order to do Bible translation, that there was no translation of the Bible in these people's languages. And so she went to, to translate the Bible into their language. And she gets there uh, and she, she, she finally finds someone who both speaks the, the language of that people and English. And it's, it, this person is gold, <laughs> She, she's found someone who, who can join her in the work of translation. And this person named Pedro is, is joyful and excited to, 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 to do this work with her. And then suddenly, one day, a drug lord has a random run-through in this tribe and ends up murdering Pedro 
and cold blood. More than that, she had been working on this translation for a number of years at that point, at Pedro's death. So she had cards and she had, uh, she had slowly begun the translation and because of a flood and then eventually a robbery, she lost everything that her and Pedro had worked on. And it's, you look at that and you think, what, wasn't, wasn't Elizabeth Elliot serving the agenda of God in this? Wasn't, wasn't she trying to do what God would, would maybe want her to do? And you, you read her biography and the way she talks about it, and she uses that exact language, that she came to realize that God is not her accomplice in what she thinks should happen, but is rather a God who is above us, transcendent above us, and is working his own plans, his own goodness. And sometimes the, the confusion of suffering allows us to wake up to that fact. Because here's the truth. Many of us have a view of God that is informed by Disney more than it is doctrine. We just expect a happy ending. We expect that, yeah, there's going to be some pain and some suffering, but we think there's got to be some, there's got to be some point that we see, right? Sometimes, no. Sometimes we won't see why. And when we don't see why, we have the opportunity to analyze and see whether we've seen God as our accomplice that we're kind of dragging along, along in our own agendas, or whether we're worshiping him and trusting him for who he is and, who, and what he wants to do, regardless of whether we understand it or not. Suffering refines our faith by showing us whether we've had God as our accomplice. And that's good news because when we have God as our accomplice, I think it lends itself toward anxiety. Because we're always trying to ask, God, would you do this? God, would you do this? And we're never really sure whether he's going to do it. We're never really sure if he's going to co-sign on our agenda. So we're perpetually anxious and insecure and unsure. But if if we take God as he is and see that he has his own agenda that we can trust, then yes, we want to pray for that, but we never have to be unsure whether he's going to do what he wants to do because he's God. We're not caught up in anxiety. We're not caught up in what ifs. Instead, we are faithfully, humbly, deferent to the Lord. We defer to him. We give deference to his agenda, the agenda that he will accomplish, which if you read the Bible is a very good agenda, much better than anything else we're trying to get him to co-sign on. And so suffering, suffering wakes us up. Suffering serves us as Christians because it helps us to see that God is not our accomplice, but he is our God who has his own plans that though as confusing they may be at times, we can trust his heart and his character. Suffering wakes us up to that. Second, and this one's key, and I think so many of us have experienced this, suffering crowds out the noise of life in order to help us prioritize communion with God. Suffering serves us as Christians because it gets us to a place where we realize God is all we need. And sometimes we do not realize that until he is all we have. The pain of suffering can help us to to get past 
living this life that doesn't prioritize communion with God because we got all these other comforts, we got all these other gifts, we got all these other things going on in our life, but then suddenly crashes, suddenly suffering crashes into our life. And some of those things are crowded out. The noise level drops in our life and we are forced to reprioritize what's really the good life. What am I really after? What's really giving me joy? What's giving me meaning and purpose? And in that space, with that type of question, we are able to jump into this river that's been flowing right beside us all along and have it carry us into communion with God. All along, we've been walking along the banks, looking at all this other stuff, seeing that, not noticing that there's this river of refreshment and joy that God wants to give us in communion with Him. And then suddenly suffering comes and we think, this is all I have. This is what, this is. And we see that God is enough. That God is not, in, in suffering, God doesn't just become your only option, but you realize he's always been your best option. And sometimes to see that, he has to be the only option. And so when we're, when we're suffering and we're laid low, it, it, it serves us well and it is for our good that we would realize that we would be in a space where we can finally reprioritize what we're really after and find rest in God. You see, suffering can help us to find rest in God because it helps us to see that our hearts, like Augustine said, are restless until they find our rest in Him. And when we're just living life, and life is good, life is easy, our agendas are moving forward, our ambitions are being established, we don't realize the undergirding foundational restlessness of our hearts in life lived apart from God. But such suddenly suffering crashes all that down and we can see that there's a rest, there's a peace available to us. That is what we were made for. And we can actually endure suffering. Even if the suffering is prolonged, we can still find it as painful as it is, as this sweet, thin place where, the where God's presence meets us in special ways that he actually is near to the brokenhearted. He's nearer to us in our broken hearts in ways we would never expect when life is going well. Never even look for. And so that's a, that's a good thing that suffering does. Suffering refines us and helps us to see that God is not our accomplice here to just co-sign on the plans that we want established, but rather actually has his own agendas that he calls us to get in alignment with and to trust Him in. It humbles us, but also it lifts us up as we run to God as our refuge, as our shelter in suffering, as our only source of life and joy. And we see that God, when He's our only option, we come to see that He has always been the best option because our hearts find rest there. And so friends, I, I, I would encourage you, sometimes when, most times actually, when you're in suffering, you don't really know why. And we want to have that question of why answered so often, and it's an understandable and important question. But more importantly, I want you to see the who and the what. I want you to ask that question. Who do you have 
and what is he doing? Let me answer those questions for you. Who you have is a God of love. A God who is not absent-minded of your pain. A God who is able to minister to you and be the physician of souls that gives joy even in pain. A God who intends to bring you into his kingdom as a Christian, full of joy and glory and honor. A God whose plan and agenda, like we read earlier in Romans 8, is to renew everything. And like we read later in the New Testament, to wipe away every tear from every eye. That's who you have. And what he is doing, what he wants to accomplish in the midst of our suffering, is to refine us, is to see who he actually is and who we should be in response to that. I, I hope and I plead that, that you hear that as good news today, even in the pain of suffering, that you hear that as good news, that suffering no longer becomes the truest point of our life, the, the victimhoodness of it, but actually the way that it serves us and moves us forward. And so in your suffering, would you run to the one you know, the one you can trust, and would you seek out, explore what he's doing, even if the question of why seems like a question that won't be answered on this side of eternity. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that you, your love is never, that suffering is never rogue, but rather in many ways, it's the vehicle in which your love hops in and works for our good. That's a hard truth sometimes to hear. Would you give us the face to hear it? Would you give us patience in our suffering to see that? Would you help us to see that suffering, when, when, when we enter into pain, suffering comes into our life. It's in that moment that Jesus understands us best. As the one whose, whose hands spin planets and keep all things together, his hands nailed motionless on a cross, suffering in our place. He understands our pain. Because of that, would you help us to run, to run to you, God, with our tears, with our pain, because of your love, with a sense of expectancy on how you will use our pain to serve our greater good, our refined faith, our deepened joy, our more truthful view of who you are. And in all that, let those things give us peace, strength, endurance, and even joy. We love you, Father, and we entrust our suffering to you. In Jesus' name, amen.